Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My idea of luxury beliefs, so I define it as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I've been following today's guest for a while on his Substack and Twitter, and his observations and findings have provided me with some odd comfort and direction over the years as someone who has some exposure to the subjects he speaks to and has lived through. Rob Henderson is a moral philosopher known for coining the term luxury beliefs, which describes a new form of rich person status signalling. Where the privileged used to differentiate themselves from the rest of us with luxury things that they bought, like a Birkin handbag or a Bentley, as these things have become more and more ubiquitous, they have now turned to signalling their higher status via woke or politically correct pronouncements that say to the world, I can afford to educate myself on these things. I have the languid time to even pontificate on such things. We're talking modern concepts such as defunding the police, polyamory, posting hashtag BLM black tiles, and pretty much everything that gets raised in the culture wars and cancel culture debates that are raging around the Western world at the moment, which is what makes this episode's discussion so important because it views these hot topics, which are so often argued along such narrow, defined terms, from a more nuanced angle. Now, the thing about these luxury beliefs, they are values or concepts only the rich can actually afford to live by. So defunding the police, for instance, is all very well if you live in a gated community with low crime and security guards. And indeed, as Rob explains, defunding the police, just as an example, winds up harming the lower classes, especially as they come to adopt these luxury beliefs themselves as they trickle down from the elite realms, just as handbag trends invariably do. Rob studied at Yale and is now based at the University of Cambridge in the UK and writes for the New York Times, Quillette, and has been interviewed on Jordan Peterson and a host of other academic and pop cultural platforms. But what best qualifies Rob as an expert on this kind of class stuff is his upbringing. Rob grew up dead poor. His mum was addicted to drugs and when he was three, he was fostered out into multiple homes before being adopted into a family that turned out just as messy and poor. 
Like many kids from extreme disadvantage, Rob wound up joining the Air Force at 17 and was deployed to the Middle East, which eventually enabled him to go to university via the GI Bill. In this episode, Rob and I talk broadly about the wealth hierarchy and how luxury beliefs work obnoxiously to widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. But we also cover fostering, online dating during the end times, work fishing, cancel culture, and why he has grown up to be a conservative. It all segues, it all says volumes about life generally. It's all a little confronting, to be honest, and it's all very wild. Okay, so welcome, Rob, to Wild. It's awesome to connect after twin and fro with COVID and various time zones. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's thanks, awesome Thanks, to have- Sarah. It's great to be here. Yes, it's really nice to see your face as well. Hey, we might cut straight to the chase and I'll get mm-hmm. you to outline luxury beliefs, how and why they came to be the new status signal. Right. My idea of luxury beliefs, I define it as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And it's informed by both my own personal experiences along with a lot of the research that I've done both at at Yale and, and now here at Cambridge. Essentially, in the past, the upper classes demonstrated their social rank through material goods, through their wealth. And people still do this, but historically, it was much more pronounced. My idea draws, for example, from Thorsten Veblen, who was a sociologist and economist in the late 19th century. He wrote a book called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And Veblen was making observations of those in the upper strata around him and noticing that the ways that they carried themselves, the clothes that they wore, expensive tuxedos, uh, delicate evening gowns, collecting artwork, going golf going beagling. And essentially, his claim was that a lot of the upper classes were trying to signal to one another that I'm a member of this upper strategist like you. And the way they did it was through costly and time-consuming goods and activities. Over time, though, as material goods have proliferated and become somewhat more affordable, the ability to demonstrate your status through material goods has been thwarted. And so now my claim is that people do this with their unusual ideas and the signaling mechanisms that you obtain through expensive educations, through having the time and the means to read and consume interesting and and unusual ideas, unconventional opinions and so forth. And this is drawn from Another sociologist from the mid-20th century named Pierre Bourdieu, you know, a lot of people, when they think about class, they think about economic capital, the size of your bank account, and how many possessions you have. But oftentimes, when people obtain a lot of wealth, the first thing they try to do is buy status. And Pierre Bourdieu's idea was that people wanted to convert their economic capital into cultural capital. They wanted to essentially find socially acceptable ways of demonstrating their wealth that wasn't ostentatious. By this point in the mid-20th century, it was a little bit vulgar or gauche to demonstrate your wealth simply through material possessions. And so he said, you know, people did this through education, whether they went to college, what specific college they went to. And so now, fast forwarding to, you know, the modern era, when I first coined the luxury beliefs idea in 2019, I was noticing around me, you know, when I was an undergrad at Yale and then here at Cambridge 
question, interacting with students at other selective institutions, you know, they were holding beliefs that were very much at odds with the views of many of the people that I grew up around, that I interacted with in my day-to-day life up until very recently within the last few years. And I read uh, some interesting research in empirical psychology, which basically found that the people who care the most about obtaining wealth and status are those who already have it. So when psychologists essentially find ways to, co- to collect measurements of people's income and their education and their wealth, their objective, you know, amount of education, material wealth and so forth. And then they ask them, you know, how how much would it please you to hold a position of power? How important is it for you to have influence over others and so forth? Their likelihood of agreeing with those is much stronger when they are already well-educated and well-off. And so that was like another piece of the puzzle that, that clicked for me was you know, the people who want status tend to already have it. And if they can't do it through material goods, then they'll do it through their beliefs. So really specifically, what you've been talking about is a really specific type of belief. They're kind of what we now call woke values and conceptions, isn't it? Or sort of politically correct statements that suggest that you're not only au fait with all of these concepts because you read a certain type of newspaper, you listen to a certain type of podcast, et cetera, but also, and I think this is the really salient point that you make, it also says that you can afford to make these proclamations. So I think a really good example, and we might use this as the example to talk through, is defund the police. And for anyone listening who missed the memo on that big debate, you know, that came out of the George Floyd death a couple of years ago at the hands of a police officer, the call was made and it suddenly sort of exploded didn't it, Rob? Like it exploded overnight. All of a sudden, everyone was calling to defund the police force, which is to say to divest the money from the police force into, I guess, causes that addressed the original issues in the first place, which has some merit, it has to be said. But it went to extremes. And these elites, as you refer to them, were suddenly talking about defunding the police. But of course, they've got the least to lose from such a concept. And so your point is that these luxury beliefs today are actually extremely harmful because they actually separate the haves and the have-nots even further. Yeah. I mean, I would say that although luxury beliefs do encompass much of woke ideology, some people have accused me of, oh, the luxury beliefs idea, it's just this, you know, it's a Trojan horse to attack the political left or something. And it's it's not true. I mean, there are sort of non-political examples of luxury beliefs. One that I give is, you know, the example of tech entrepreneurs who will produce addictive technologies. But then when you when you look at how they implement certain rules in their own homes with their own children, you know, like Steve Jobs famously wouldn't let his kids play with iPads. You know, there are other tech entrepreneurs who talk about how they carefully monitor their kids' screen time or they have like special rooms where like, oh, that's the phone room. If you want to use your phone, you have to go in that room. But if you leave that room, you have to put your phone away. But meanwhile, you know, they're, they're, they're getting rich off of selling addictive technologies and developing apps and so forth. The defund the police idea, I mean... So, so again, I, I coined the luxury beliefs idea in 2019 and I never would have guessed in a million years that, you know, six or seven months later, like the, like the most sort of outrageous example would, would suddenly take hold of, you know, let's not have police anymore. Yeah. It just floored me. So then I, I started thinking like, okay, well, 
you know, my intuition is that uh, naturally this is going to have like a very, a very harmful effect, not just the policy itself, which, which many cities and many counties and states implemented of uh, reducing the funding for the police force, but then also just cultivating this attitude of resentment and anger towards police such that cops are going to respond to that and just stop patrolling certain neighborhoods or, I mean, because you know, cops are going to get paid either way. It's really, I mean, it's really hard to fire certain government employees, cops being among them. But once they learn like, oh, if I do my job and people are going to hate me for it, then like, they're just not going to do it. And you can see like, not only is homicide and violent crime increasing in the US, but also interestingly, like traffic deaths, the number of motorists and disproportionately lower income motorists are dying <laughs> because cops aren't pulling people over anymore. If they see a drunk driver swerving around, they're less likely to take the risk of pulling them over because they don't want to have any kind of altercation with anyone that could be captured on phone. And so so, so they're just kind of hanging out and getting paid and not doing much or taking early retirements. Then I looked at the survey data of, well, who's actually supporting this? And generally, the support is higher income Americans. So, you know, the YouGov ran a survey in 2020 asking, you know, do you support defund the police? And Americans earning more than $100,000 a year, which was the top income category in that survey, was far more likely than Americans earning less than $50,000 a year. So the richest Americans were the most supportive of it. But then if you look at what was going on during the demonstrations of 2020, there were all these stories coming out about rich people fleeing Manhattan and going to the Hamptons with private security, you know, all these people were saying defund the police and then privately they're they're paying the money because they have the resources and the means to hire bodyguards, hire off-duty cops, and essentially they are unaffected by the policies that they were proposing. And then there was a study out of Minneapolis, you know, that was the city where, where George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, and white respondents of the surveys there were more supportive of defunding the police than than black respondents. Like the black citizens of Minneapolis were the ones who were more likely to say we should have more cops. So it was just like, yeah, rich people and white people are like, let's defund the police and poor people, black people, you know, people of color were saying like, we like the cops. So it's very interesting to see what was happening there with this luxury belief. Well, I guess the point is, it's the minorities, the people in the lower classes who are going to be most affected by crime. The rich are less affected by crime because they live in nice neighbourhoods, they've got gated communities, they've got, as you said, good security and so on. And so they can afford to do this. And I think you make the point that like sort of, you know, handbag trends, the Birkin handbag, over time gets passed down and the middle classes start buying them and then the lower middle classes start buying them or at least buy the fakes and it becomes ubiquitous. It's the same with luxury beliefs. These beliefs then get handed down and get picked up on like all trends. And that also disadvantages the lower classes if they're suddenly saying defund the police when it is not beneficial to them. So that sort of adds a double whammy, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it simultaneously, you know, boosts the the status and the esteem of the people expressing ideas who tend to be disproportionately well off. Well, often, yeah, uh, harming people who are less fortunate, people who are in a position where, you know, once these policies are implemented, I think a lot of affluent people have misconceptions about a class that they often don't encounter very frequently. People talk a lot about polarization in terms of politics in America, but there's a lot of polarization in terms of class divides too. There are a lot of debates about how to define class, but a very simple heuristic that I like is... Did you grow up in an environment and in a family home where you knew for sure that you were going to go to college or not? You know, whether it was a question, whether you would go. And if it was a question, you belong to a different class than if it was a predetermined decision. Is that a sort of a determiner that comes up a bit in sociology of class? Because that cuts through 
so wonderfully. And it's a topic actually, Rob, I've been exploring on this podcast and particularly in the context of how a lot of people in the upper echelons like to claim that class doesn't exist. And that's just another way of keeping the divide alive and well. And there's a lot of equalization that I find the upper classes like to play into. You know, in Australia, it takes the form of the mega wealthy behaving like the everyday bloke, you know, going to rugby league, eating the meat pie and talking with a really ochre accent. And I see this play out around the world and then they'll turn around and go, oh, it's an egalitarian society which then, of course, leaves anybody who's disadvantaged with no platform. You know, well, we're silenced. We're not allowed to say there's difference going on here. So that's a really interesting distinguisher is, you know, do you assume you'd go to college? And I can tell you I never did. And I know from your background that was probably not an assumption that you grow up with. No, no, not at all. That specific definition is kind of like my own pet definition. But in research in social psychology and sociology, what they tend to use as a marker of class is your parents' education, which I think is, I mean, they're almost the same thing, right? Like if you had at least one parent who went to college, it's almost certain that they would want you to go as well, where the expectation was thrust upon you. If you look at the most elite institutions in America, you know, Harvard, Stanford and Yale and so forth, you know, more than 80 percent of their students are from, you know, what they call continuing generation college families, where they, you know, the vast majority have at least one parent who went to college mm-hmm. and a numerical minority are first generation students like like I was. So, yeah, yeah, the the, the class, you know, it's tricky and it changes over time. But I think the education one is still a, a useful Marker. Before we move on, I'd love you to give some more examples of luxury beliefs so we all get a real feel for what you're talking about. There's one example that I came up with when I first formed this idea, which is really about family. And it was very much uh, emerged out of my own personal experiences and then my reading of the empirical literature for what's happening to families in the US and the UK for that matter, and probably many other countries. I had this conversation and I've had different versions of this conversation many times by now with a, a, a fellow student of mine. What she said was that marriage was outdated and that we should sort of evolve beyond monogamous relationships. And, you know, saying that it was a sort of patriarchal, oppressive institution. And I thought, okay, but then how did, how did you grow up? Like, what was your family like? And, you know, she, she went to Yale and now she works for, you know, a well-known technology company. She's doing very well for herself. But she, she told me, uh, you know, I, I was raised by, you know, my, my birth parents in a, you know, stable home in a you know, pretty well-to-do neighborhood. And then I said, okay, so then what are you like, what are you going to do like with your life? Like after you, you know, graduate and go on to your career, it's like, what do you want to do though in terms of your family? And she said, you know, I'll probably get married and have a kid and settle down at some point, you know, and I'm like, okay, but you're saying the marriage is outdated. What do you like? Why are you saying that? And she said, well, I, I know that like for me, that's what I want, but that doesn't have to be for everyone. And, you know, we shouldn't be promoting this idea to people. And I said, well, why not? Like you benefited from it and you plan to practice those same habits yourself in your own life. Saying that marriage is outdated or oppressive or something, like it's a, it's a fashionable uh, idea to express, you know, to, to, to question the norms and customs of your culture and to basically think to yourself, well, what do most people believe? And the sort of conventional, you know, median 
person in society would say like, yeah, marriage is probably a good thing. And I hope to get married someday. I mean, there are there's survey data on this that most young people say they do want to get married at some point. And so a, a way to sort of express your sophistication and education and intellect and so forth is to say like, oh, actually, that's wrong to take a, an opinion that's very much at odds with what most people would believe. People who have a lot of education and material wealth will say these kinds of things. But then when you look at their own lives, they're very much practicing, you know, getting married and having kids and moving to safe neighborhood and settling down and, you know, waiting to start their families until they're sort of settled. Um, and so on the one hand, they're, they're spreading this message of, you know, marriage. And there was recently, there was actually, yeah, just an, an article yesterday, or the day before in Slate about, you know, basically like why, why, why divorce isn't as bad as you think for kids. But, you know, as soon as I read it, I was like, if you, if you look into the background of the author of that piece, like I'm, I'm fairly certain that they themselves have parents who didn't divorce. And if they're married at all, they, they haven't experienced divorce themselves. Because if you look at the data on this, non-college educated Americans, the divorce rate for them is somewhere around 60%. And if you look at the divorce rate for college educated Americans, it's less than 10%. So that's like a, a key luxury belief is this, you know, on the one hand, denigrating marriage and monogamy and stable relationships. And then on the other, practicing those same habits in your own life and, and experiencing the benefits of them, uh, I mean, I've, I've written about this before, but if I, what I remember having this, um, you know, having this, this feeling of like, I don't know, vertigo when I was in a class in college and undergrad and the professor administered this anonymous survey to the class asking us how many of us were raised by both of our birth parents. And out of 20 something students, everyone except two were raised by both of their birth parents. And I saw this, you know, she, the professor put the results on, on, on the, on the slide. And I'm looking at that, like, is that right? Like, there's no possible way that it's just me and one other student in here who were not raised by both. Like, this just floored me because I was thinking back to the kinds of, you know, the guys that I grew up around when I went to high school, I had a group of five close friends. So there were six of us in total. None of us were raised by both of our parents. Yeah. That was just like the norm. And so then to enter an environment where like, yeah, of course, like I have a mom and a dad and I'm like, what? Like that's just, it's a very different, uh, you know, this sort of the class divisor are so stark. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's really interesting, Rob. A couple of episodes back, I interviewed Joseph Heinrich, who wrote the book Weird. It looks at a similar phenomenon, and that is the fact that sociological studies, something like 94, I think it is, it could be 97% of studies about human nature. They're done on white, I think, white, educated, industrialised, rich, democratic 
people, Democracies, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the and W so actually stands for Western, but Western, like, you're you know, right. but, but, okay. but yeah, it's mostly white, yeah. You know, you know the thesis. And so we have all these assumptions about what's normal and what's, you know, what's the standard and all that kind of thing, but it is based on a very particular subset of, of elites, essentially, from around the world. Maybe we might pick up actually on some of the fostering experiences because I foster kids and I was really blown away by the fact that you looked at some studies that showed just the level of disadvantage that befalls foster kids in particular and that it's the most dominant driver for disadvantage in the Western world. Would you be able to just give us a little bit of a picture of the extent of this disadvantage? So when you look at the the statistics for, say, college graduation rates, a lot of people focus on the socioeconomic disparities, you know, indicating, oh, kids from low-income families are at, at a disadvantage. Well, I actually looked at the graduation rates uh, across the socioeconomic spectrum. And, you know, it's, you know, for, for the for the top income quintile, you know, like the richest 20% or kids from the richest 20% of families, you know, it's like all, all but guaranteed that they're going to go to, it's like more than 80% of kids from those kinds of families end up going to university. And then if you look at the bottom quintile, it's some abysmally low number. It's 11% uh, is the latest data that I saw. So much lower than the top and people focus on that. But then if you look at the college graduation rates of foster kids, it's less than 3%. And that's something like no one ever talks about, right? Is that like, actually, if you're, if you're a kid from a poor family in America, you're four times more likely to graduate college than if you grew up in foster care. But that's completely overlooked. You know, so a question I had when I was sifting through these data, you know, why, why might this be the case? And then I encountered some interesting work in developmental and evolutionary psychology, which basically they make a distinction between uh, childhood harshness and childhood instability as predictors of life outcomes. And so harshness is essentially a you know, childhood harshness defined as you know, roughly family income, family socioeconomic status, how much money you had growing up. And childhood instability is uh, encompassed by a variety of factors, including uh, the number of relocations you experienced as a kid growing up, whether you were raised by a single mom, whether your parents were divorced, how many different uh, caretakers you had in your life, basically like how much sort of uncertainty and disorder there was growing uh, as you were growing up. And you know, every single study that I found has shown that childhood instability is a far stronger predictor of childhood outcomes than income, you know, family income. And so, so yeah, I mean, th th so this floored me, you know, if you, whether, whether it's, um, likelihood of drug addiction, criminality, prison time. prison time, teen pregnancy rates, you know, occupational success, educational attainment, childhood socioeconomic status has almost no effect on whether you're going to be happy as an adult. It's not, it's not a predictor at all, but childhood instability is a pretty strong predictor of happiness in adulthood, your likelihood of experiencing anxiety and depression and so forth. And so there does seem to be something about, you know, living in, in a disorderly kind of environment where especially, you know, the, the number of placements, the number of foster care placements is a pretty strong correlator mm. with all of these kinds of detrimental outcomes. Yeah, I think those correlations, I find them really interesting. And what a lot of people don't realise who haven't been involved in the foster care system in any way is that the amount of turnover. Kids very rarely stay, you know, get placed into a foster care home and they stay there till they're 18. It's, it's, it's exceedingly rare. I know, I think you had seven foster parents or foster homes until you sort of were adopted. And the kids that 
I receive, you know, they're just on constant churn. It's the same story. They've been in 10 foster homes by the age of 11 and, and this kind of thing. It's terrible. And it really is the, the common denominator. And I can see, I mean, kids need routine and they just need to know that there's a sole carer out there for them. Well, I'm really intrigued though. You've written quite a bit about foster care and I know that you've got a book that's going to be coming out next year and we'll have the details in the show notes for that book so that people can look out for it. But one of the articles you wrote for the New York Times was why being a foster child made me a conservative. Can you explain why that's the case? Yeah. So, so in that uh, New York Times op-ed, I, I highlight two key factors that I think were protective and, and sort of redirected my, my life trajectory. So one was family. Like you said, so I grew up in seven different homes and my mother was addicted to drugs. And then I was taken and placed into care and moved around all around Los Angeles in different homes. And, you know, then I was adopted and there was a lot of sort of turmoil and drama, divorce. But there was a, a very brief period in my adolescence from around nine, nine to 14, right before high school, where my, um, my mother and her, her partner. Uh, so my mother fell in love with a woman named Shelly and she and her uh, partner raised me throughout my adolescence. And, you know, that, that period I recall as being like the sort of most stable and most just beneficial and, and loving period of my life. And it was, it was that period where I, I did like well in school, I had a routine. I really uh, sort of looked forward to being around my family and spending time with them and so forth. And I think like that gave me sort of just enough of a glimpse of what I wanted for my own life that I carried that with me. I mean, I still like later on in high school and and in my teenage years, I, I did get into a lot of trouble and mischief, but I, I carried those experiences with me and it gave me something to aim for later. And I, I saw the way that my my mother and her partner prioritized the well-being of myself and my sister and the routines that they set for us. And, you know, even though it was hard for them and we, I mean, we, you know, we were, we struggled financially and it was hard on them, I think, too, to, to care for us and, and to deal. You know, this was the early to mid 2000s in a rural town in Northern California. And so I think for them, being a gay couple was probably not the easiest thing, but they they made it work and I admired them for that. And then the other part of that op-ed I stress was was personal responsibility, which which I learned from from my my two moms, but then also from my experiences in the military. And to just say that, like, yes, uh, <laughs> I was dealt a pretty bad hand, you know, not the worst, but, you know, far from the best. And I made the most of it. And even if things aren't your fault, they can still be your responsibility. And I, I realized like pretty early on that I was on my own. I, I, I distinctly remember when I was uh, seven years old in one of my foster homes and moving for, for, you know, the, I think at that point it was the sixth or seventh time I had relocated and I had like sort of reached sort of like enough self-awareness. Like I had come online by that point at age seven to have like self-reflective thoughts and realizing like, I'm really on my own here. Like I'm just bouncing around different homes and this is my life and realizing like, I'm, I have to sort of take responsibility for myself. And I had that realization. I, it didn't always take, I would still make mistakes and still do things that I, I, I you know, I'd later regret, but realizing that, you know, you have to take responsibility for yourself and no one is going to do it for you. The foster system was so fucked up and my life was so in, in such, such chaos and turmoil that, you know, 
there was no system that was going to save me. So that's that was just uh, another thing that I stressed in that in that op-ed. I do find it an interesting takeout, but I do see it a lot. People who come from disadvantage and have to make their own way develop somewhat of an intolerance or a sort of a a wish to get away from snowflake mentality, which is extremely prevalent on university campuses or college campuses around the world. And I find it interesting just to sort of follow some of the interviews you've done, the work that you've done, the, the journals that you've written for. Yeah, it's all intriguing work. You take pop cultural ideas and you just bring a spin to it that's just so interesting. And I really encourage people to go and, well, obviously follow your Substack newsletter as a starting point for all of this. But a lot of these ideas are at the centre of cancel culture or the, the, the cancel culture debate. I was really wanting to have a quick chat to you. I'm sort of digressing a little and I, I want to get back to luxury beliefs before we end this interview. But the cancel culture debate is really interesting. It's raging, particularly in the US, but I think it is spreading around the rest of the world. It's not huge in Australia, but we obviously have examples of it and it pops up in media all the time. But your thesis exposes some of the fault lines of this cancel culture debate. And I'm wondering what you think of this. I have a fair few concerns about how it is being debated. What I notice is there's almost two dominant types of cancelers. On the one hand, you've got millennial elite university students who are both cancelling, but also accusing people of cancelling them. You know, that's where a lot of this dialogue happens. And as a representative Gen Xer here, I can tell you my generation, we don't really talk about it. We don't feel cancelled all that often, nor do we really get accused of being of being cancellers ourselves. On the other hand, the other sort of group that you have are white predominantly, but older, powerful men. So Rupert Murdoch bleats about it. You've got Joe Rogan. You've got Jordan Peterson. You've got these men who have massive platforms and really it's sort of a bit rich for them to say I've been cancelled. Really what they've been told to do is pull their head in, get a little bit relevant and let other people speak for change. So it's so interesting that you've got these two quite privileged groups going at each other, both cancelling and then bleating that they're being cancelled. And it, I take sort of your luxury belief thesis, which has the second component to it, which is that these luxury beliefs and the fact that the elites hold them it has very little cost to them, but much bigger costs to the lower classes. I see it happening in the cancel culture realm. And this is a little bit complex, but essentially what it does, this whole debate, it's front and centre. It is taking up huge amounts of oxygen And from where I sit, it is distracting all of us from the things we really need to be doing and getting on with, like perhaps uh, addressing climate change, perhaps really looking at the difference between the haves and have-nots in a really material way and all the other issues that we've got facing the planet today. What do you think of that, Rob? It's something I've just been talking about quite a lot, particularly on my travels around the world at the moment where I am seeing these elitist conversations happen, but I'm going, well, who's having them? And who is actually unable to talk in the grey areas and in the nuance and to encapsulate, you know, conservative and left-leaning wokest kind of thinking and going, we need all of it right now. And it's these two groups, I feel, that are dominating and a cost comes with it all. I definitely take the point that, like, the people involved are... 
I mean, cancel culture itself is very much a sort of a intra-elite warfare where it's just a bunch of people who are totally. who are disproportionately well off. You know, it's like a circular firing squad of people who are educated and affluent and doing well for themselves who are all sort of inflicting injuries on one another, status well, it's injuries. Qu- it's the equivalent of beagling, damage. right? It's the equivalent <laughs> of beagling in the 19th century. If you've got time to discuss mm. this and get worked up about it, then you've, you're probably living a fairly languid life. Yeah. It's not something that you know, day laborers or blue collar workers are losing a lot of sleep over is whether they'll get canceled. It's mostly in the sort of knowledge worker sector and in the sort of, you know, what, what, I've, what I've heard called like the laptop class, you know, where part of your, uh, um, Occupational success relies on reputation, the institutions you're affiliated with, the kinds of people that you're around, how much approval you have of other fellow elites. And so, yeah, it's uh, I mean, there's interesting data on like who is the most likely to self-censor. There's a study a couple of years ago, which basically found, you know, that self-censorship increases the higher up you go in education. So uh, if you look at people with a high school degree only, only uh, roughly 25 percent of those people uh, say that they self-censor out of fear of getting fired or ruining employment prospects. But then by the time you get to people who have a postgraduate degree, it goes up to 44 percent. And so, you know, essentially among people who have postgraduate degrees, you know, you can flip a coin to see whether they're telling the truth. And, you know, people are are, are very much sort of wary now couching about- uh, yeah. You're couching everything in, in sort of politically correct terms. That goes against a little, doesn't it, what we might assume. We might assume mm. that the elites would feel that they've got the ability to go and sort of mouth off on whatever they like. But they care the most about status, right? And so they're the most concerned with right. other people judging them in a negative way, right? Like once, you know, one of my claims in, in my luxury beliefs concept is that once you are- and, and I draw from a lot of like the, the the psychological research on this, but once your physical basic material needs are met, status concerns become even more of, of a preoccupation, not less, right? I mean, it's almost like, you know, a lot of people may be familiar with like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like once your sort of physical security is, is, is uh, satisfied, the next step up is like, you know, a social esteem and friendship and those kinds of things. Well, you know, yeah, like uh, when, when your day-to-day life is, is consumed with, you know, making sure that you're making ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck, you don't have a lot of time to think like, how, how do other people think about me and how do I boost my reputation and so forth? But once once you're at that level, once you're in that white collar position of spending a lot of time online and reading the latest op-eds and on Twitter or whatever, then then it's like very much, you know, how, how, how do I look in the eyes of others? And people become much more careful, you know, become more prickly. Yeah, yeah. I really want to actually just round things off with a little bit more of a discussion around luxury beliefs. And I want to bring it to the dating realm. Everyone I know loves talking about online dating, particularly married couples who say they can't even fathom this realm. And I have been on all of the apps over the last, I don't know, 15 years of being single. So I'm very familiar with a lot of the stuff that you refer to. And I've heard you talking about a number of phenomenon, you know, that crop up in this world. And you are able to apply some of this luxury belief thinking to it. Can you give a couple of examples? One of them, for instance, I think, and I see it all the time, is the polyamorous credential in the bio. Men love to sort of cite that they're polyamorous. And I've got to say, it is once again millennials. So it's men who are quite young. I think men over about 40 don't tend to add that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, I mean, the polyamorous thing is I, I, well, it's, it's probably not the, the most surprising thing in the world why young men would want to do that, you know, why sort of exploiting a, a cultural 
trend to, you know, maximize their own sexual experiences. I mean, so, so I think that's, that's one piece of it, but then, you know, I think a lot of women are responding to this too. And I, am sure there are age differences here where, you know, women under 30 are more likely to put poly in their bio versus, you know, women over 40 or something. And this, this is just, you know, I, th- I think of polyamory as like the latest expression of, of luxury beliefs. I mean, there's, you know, the, the data on, you know, who's most likely to practice polyamory or uh, open relationships or, you know, the, uh, what is there's like a phrase like ethical non-monogamy, which I find oh, like, oh yeah, I've seen idea. that one. <laughs> I mean, you can put ethical behind anything and make it sound good, you know, like, a, a, a ethical murder, ethic. I mean, you can put it by, but I'm not yeah. comparing it to murder. Sustainable, but like, you know, sustainable. It's, it's sustainable yeah, murder is yeah, a bit of an oxymoron, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But ethical or sustainable behind almost anything and it'll sound better at least. So if you, if you look at like who tends to champion these ideas around sexual freedom of unchaining these kinds of norms and so forth, freeing yourselves, liberating yourselves, it tends to be the the, the more educated and elite people. I mean, this was true during the, the sort of sexual revolution in the 1960s. It was primarily championed by affluent upper and upper middle class people. You know, I think a lot of the focus is on, you know, feminists and women and so forth. But a lot of guys were on board with it, too, because I think like you know, people have this like idea in their mind about like gender wars. But a lot of guys are very much in favor of sexual freedom, especially young men, uh, for obvious reasons. And <laughs> that is I, I not talk- a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago. You know, he was very much active on the apps and he was telling me when he set his radius, you know, you could set, you know, how far you want to match with people. He said it to right around his university and he said, you know, something like a third or half of the women he matched with who, who, who primarily tended to be students, you know, undergrad, grad students, they had things like a you know, poly or, you know, just, just keeping it casual, you know, these kinds of things in their, in their bio. And then when he extended the radius to include the outskirts of the university, which was a more sort of rundown working class area, uh, he said about half of the women who were the same age, right? You know, 18 to 23 years old or something. He said about half of them were single moms. And, you know, my, my wow, general plan dark. here is, yeah, yeah, which is like, you know, sexual freedom looks different depending on the class that you occupy. And if you're in a university and you're well off and you have access to resources and so forth, yeah, you can, you can, uh, experience the, the pleasures of, of, of sexual freedom and have multiple partners and so forth. But then if you're uh, in a different kind of environment that isn't as well off, the experiences are much different. And I've written about this. I cited some research from Pew. You know, they basically asked people about their experiences on the apps, whether they've ever experienced harassment or abuse or whether they think the apps are safe to use, whether they've ever had any kind of negative experience meeting someone on the apps. And the differences are quite stark between people who went to college versus people who didn't. And people who went to college are are basically, they have a more pleasant experience. People who didn't go to college, if they use the apps, you know, they tend to match with and interact with people who also didn't go to college. And they are more likely to meet people who are abusive or uh, harass them, who send them unwanted pictures and messages and so forth. And I think about this, you know, the, the way that, that that college has very much sort of created a divide in our society where like, look, I, I, I remain friends with a lot of the guys I grew up around and I like a lot of them, but you know, some of them, the way that they treat women, the way, not, I mean, the way that they they treat other guys, I mean, just the, their, their general behavior towards people, but especially in romantic relationships, it's just so much different than, you know, I mean, it's funny, you know, colleges are the place where people talk the most about like whatever toxic masculinity and how bad men are and so forth. And, you know, that's, you know, but, but the kinds of guys that are in college are actually 
they're nicer. They're less hostile. They're less sort of angry. And, you know, part of this may be due to material conditions and class and so forth. But like for women in in sort of more working class and more impoverished conditions, the guys that they interact with are much different and generally more unpleasant. And I think this is also something that people overlook, you know, as we sort of extend the the freedoms in the realm of dating and romance. Uh, if you're an educated woman, maybe it's it's uh, it's liberating and it's free and it's fun. But for less mm. educated women, it's it's a very different uh, experience. Yeah, that doesn't always play out. I think there's a really big movement here in Australia. I know it's also happening in the US, where a lot of private school and we're talking not college, we're talking year eleven and twelve, end of high school students have put together campaigns essentially around the fact that the levels of rape and sexual assault amongst elite school women or school girls is so much higher than in public schools, primarily because they're segregated. And so there's, you know, big consent arguments that have been happening that have risen out of private schools and the level of assault is unbelievable. But essentially, I believe it's because it's it's single-sex schools where young men don't get to see women in the classroom competing with them and doing just as well and not wearing makeup, not being drunk at a party. At these single-sex schools, they only see girls at parties with a bit of alcohol, flirting and looking available for men, you know. And so I think it really creates a different mindset and a different level of respect for women and their capabilities. So, yeah, I think that's an an interesting distinguishing feature there. I think certainly there's a lot of rape and violence issues on campus in universities around the world. But anyway, we can break that down another time. Woke fishing is something you also refer to, and it's this idea of, I think, men in particular articulating their incredible interests in altruism and ethical whatever it might be in their bios. And I think you've looked into that as well, right, as a phenomenon. It's another form of luxury belief signaling. Yeah, I wrote a long piece about this, about what's going on with woke fishing. And, you know, I have a friend, he lives, he did live in DC, he recently relocated, but he was telling me that there's this running joke that any man who puts moderate in their Hinge profile is a Republican. <laughs> and, uh, okay, and then, you know, so they dial and, it down. Yeah, basically. Yeah. They're sort of withholding their views and yeah. But, but, you know, so, so I, I found that interesting. And then he, he sent me these articles about woke fishing and stuff and about how, you know, basically a lot of guys are pretending to hold a, a very progressive political views in order to attract young women. You know, I mean, it's really interesting if you look at the political divides, what's happened among men and women, you know, so so women in general are more likely to be on the left than men. And then among young people, the difference is more pronounced. But this is relatively recent. If you look at survey data all throughout the 20th century, men used to be more left-wing than women. Women used to be more conservative up until the 1980s, and then everything flipped. And now women are the ones who are more left-wing. The home and mm. those traditional structures, you know, they had more right. of an interest in stability of income, the economy being stable and so on. Mm. They're yeah. more likely to be married to married women are more likely to be conservative and marriage has fallen and that may explain some of it. And yeah, I mean, there's interesting, like sort of anthropological work on this. I found that a lot of, a lot of like small scale human society say that, you know, women are the sort of upholders and maintainers of social norms. Like they're the ones who sort of like keep the, you know, social harmony and stability and those kinds of things tend to be uh, in these communities, the responsibilities of women. And so I I wonder if there's, there's an effect there too, of like why women used to be more conservative, but yeah. And so, so now, uh, you know, now now that women have become more left-wing and, you know, guys, especially young guys are, you know, sort of just responding to, to the, the uh, romantic incentives, Mm. uh, they are pretending to be more woke than they really are. 
And there were some some interesting articles that had come out in the last few years, especially during the Trump years of like, you know, guys who were Donald Trump supporters, but they were putting things in their bio, you know, supporting uh, BLM or supporting the Me Too movement or all of these things, even though they really didn't simply to uh, increase their romantic prospects. And I've dug into some interesting research on this. Like it's a very thorny question in the dating realm that the guys that tend to ha- like have the characteristics that are attractive to women also tend to be uh, more conservative in their politics. So things like height, height correlates with political conservatism in men, upper body strength correlates with political conservatism, other things too, like economic wealth, right? Like it's not surprising, right? That, that uh, wealthy people, you know, they, they want to pay less taxes and so forth. So, so, you know, things that are, that generally are attractive to, to women and men, you know, being strong, being tall, educated and wealthy, uh, those things often correlate with political conservatism, but then those guys will often sort of downplay their political views or, or take the opposite view in order to, uh, you know, to, to, to get more dates. Mm, and yeah, I think this is, this is, uh, I think a lot of women are becoming more aware of this, which is where that whole woke fishing phenomenon arose. Yeah. It's so interesting. That's another area that is luxury belief signaling is playing out and, and confusing, confusing the dating realm, you know, incredibly to pick up on a question that you asked before about why it is that women, uh, maybe in the 1980s were voting far more conservatively than they are now. I remember when I was studying feminism back in, you know, gosh, shortly after the last ice age, the observation was made that during times of economic opulence, the 1980s been a very economically opulent time. The 1950s been another example. Women tend to, you know, go back to the very womanly shapes. Their fashion becomes all about boobs and hips and small waists. So Marilyn Monroe, Pamela Anderson in the 80s, you know, and they tend to take on very conservative beliefs about the family. So in the 1950s, everyone went back to the suburbs, you know, whereas in the 1940s during, you know, far more austere times, women were in the workforce, they wore pants. In the flapper era in the 1920s, feminism was on the rise, women wore pants once again, and it was straight up and down, comfortable clothing. So yes, it's very much tied to the economic times and women's views and their fashion and the way that that the ideal body is portrayed, very linked to the level of opulence at particular times in history. Just thought I'd throw that one in there. You might want to go and look up that research. It's old now, but I'm sure it's still very, very relevant. Hey, listen, I'm going to leave it there. I meandered around, but I meandered on purpose because you do tend to write about such a broad number of things. But I think this luxury beliefs concept is really illuminating. It really got me thinking about my own privilege. I'm now a a white privileged female and I'm aware to the extent that I, you know, I spread these kind of woke ideas without proper consideration of how they might be affecting those not in the same position as myself. And I think that's what your arguments raise. And I think it's awesome. Hmm. Well, thanks very much, Sarah. This is great. Yeah. And good luck with your work. I'll look forward to your book coming out. We'll talk soon. And thanks for taking the time. All right. Thank you. Well, it's a really interesting time to be discussing all of this as woke talk and cancel culture debates rage. It's no coincidence that right-wing academic Jordan Peterson and his daughter Michaelia and other similar anti-liberal and heterodox commentators have jumped onto his ideas and referred to them to denounce the quote-unquote elites. 
Now, I'll flag here, we always have to be careful not to clump ideas into camps and ideologies. All of us, you know, woke elites, conservatives and everyone in between, it's an easy thing to do in this era of such complexity and overwhelm. But if we're going to progress and solve the various crises on our plate, we need to be more aware and honest about the impact of our ideas and our habits. Woke, or let's just call them awake ideas so as to not fall into that binary trap. Liberal thinking and politically sensitive and aware discussions are not a problem in and of themselves. Far from it. We need the sensitivity. We need the contrasting approach as we navigate our way beyond the old ways. We are between worlds. The pendulum of thinking will need to swing to some extreme perspectives for a bit, and that's all good. And it's the same with debates about defunding the police and the value of marriage and pronouns and rigid gender boundaries and so on. We need to have these discussions so that we can chart our way to a new, more evolved era. But, and this is perhaps a very woke liberal perspective, the point of wild ideas like Rob's is precisely to get us to think fully and truthfully about the implications of these kinds of concepts which challenge the conservative status quo, and not to accept them blindly. In the case of some of the ideas that emerge from liberal elite universities, they are not only often disingenuous, they serve to continue the separation between the haves and the have-nots. And I'll be honest, some are ideas I have often accepted as just the correct ones, because they've come out of elite universities. I'm not sure how you feel, but off the back of this chat, I've been having a good hard look at my own privilege and thinking with more awareness about the social value statements that I make. Am I signaling? Am I merely trying to signal my elitism, my higher status, my better than you-ness? It also got me reflecting more and more on cancel culture and wokeism, exploring the nuances on all of the sides of the fences and ditto what it means to be a conservative in the traditional sense of the word. I've got to say, I'm enjoying the process of having my presumptions and my assumptions challenged like this throughout this podcast evolution. I hope you are too. It's really important right now and pretty wild. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.